This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, as we're recording this, it is January 6, 2022, exactly one year after the Capitol riots following the contentious presidential election where President Trump insisted he'd won his re-election bid. Uh, the thought on everyone's mind today, I think, is what can we do to avoid another January 6th-like debacle? Um, our colleague Michael McConnell had a piece in the Washington Post with a few authors, co-authors yesterday, um, uh, talking about the Electoral Count Act. I think everyone I've been reading uh, on this on this subject has been talking about it. And and I want uh, to you know ask you about this a little bit more. This is the ECA is it's the law that governs the certification of the presidential vote. And as you know, it's it was passed back in 1887, hasn't been amended since. Um, can you give us some perspective on how the Electoral Count Act fits into, I guess, our current system and any suggestions you might have on, well, understanding it and then maybe reforming it? Well, I'm not going to be brave enough to say that I or anybody else understands it, but I do think it's important to sort of put this into the general context of how it is that presidents are chosen. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of all of this and to figure out how it is that we come up with an electoral college and then how this thing starts to get transformed over the years. And the first thing to understand about the electoral college is they actually meant what they said and they said what they meant. The electoral college was supposed to be a set of deliberative bodies in each state, uh, which essentially decided on how they wished the presidential election to come out. And then they would all meet in Washington and they would kind of cast their vote. We know that the thing was not simply notational because uh, there was an exclusion from electors for those people who had conflicts of interest. And so if this was simply just a mission in which you counted things formally, there would be no reason to exclude anybody. You could make your pet dog an elector because all they have to do is to carry between their teeth the outcome of the particular election. Well, it turns out the electoral system as they designed it cannot work. Uh, This was designed with George Washington in mind, and he didn't run against anybody. Adam Wynn, and it's obviously getting more contentious. And then in 1800, everything falls apart simultaneously. And there's this huge battle, which eventually ends up um, in the House of Representatives, I believe. And it turns out that the winner by a series of very dubious maneuvers, they're all dubious, uh, was Thomas Jefferson. So people start looking around. They realize that having presidents and vice presidents by different parties don't work because uh, they didn't even anticipate a party system when they put this thing together. They realize that a deliberative body doesn't work. And so slowly what happens is these institutions get transferred in a way in which they simply record the popular vote in a particular state. And the party who wins has a bunch of what they call bound electors who will deliver the outcome to somebody else. And so the electoral college ceases to be a deliberative vote, and essentially what it does is it becomes simply a counting mechanism. And after the 1800 election, they passed the 12th Amendment. I've read it many times. I would dare not try to summarize it on a popular broadcast unless I spent many more hours than I'm doing presently to figure out what it was. And the great success of the 12th Amendment is it was never used. Although if you look at it compared to the other amendments, it's eye-poppingly different. The First Amendment says, oh, we believe in freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. This amendment sets out on a completely elaborate procedure, which is subject to some kind of game. 
Now, the next stage of this is we finally do have a really ugly situation with the Thai election in 1876 between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford Hayes. And uh, we are trying to work under this system that we had put into place in 1804. But what happens is they cut a deal. And the deal is that when you throw this into the House, uh, Hayes will be elected president on condition that he end Reconstruction which, of course, is what the Democrats wanted. This was a day, for example, when the African-American vote was 100% Republican because of Abe Lincoln. This is not the modern time. And then 10 years later, you put this thing into place to figure out how it is that you count the ballots and way in which you go. And again, what they're trying to do is to figure out how you avoid some kind of a deliberative situation. And so what you want these things to be done is to put them together and have a way in which you can simply count. All right, Richard, I want to ask specifically about the Electoral Count Act, the ECA, if you think it actually uh, worked, right? We haven't had to, we haven't had to use it. We haven't had to discuss it until, I guess, this last election here. Um, Many people actually even think it, is it unconstitutional? Is it, is, do we need to, to, to reform it in order to get rid of ambiguity? Well, I mean, there is an objection that has been raised to it as to whether or not you can have everybody come together um, as a single house or whether they have to be separate. Um, This is a counting situation. The way the act is worded is that the vice president opens up the ballots and counts them in the presence of people from both the Senate and the House. And there's some thought that the 12th Amendment requires that you do this um, not before a joint session, but before a separate session. Um, You know, this is one of these things in which you're trying to figure out, is this a harmless error or a harmful error? And if it turns out it's a harmless error, you're going to treat the statute as being unconstitutional if it means that you have no mechanism to resolve these cases. I mean, I think what's happened is that the essential hero of the dame the last time around was was Mike Pence, who just looked at the statute and said, my job is to open these. The argument that had been made by, amongst others, John Eastman and company, was that if it turns out that you have two rival slates that are coming forward, uh, you can't decide which of these two slates to open unless you imagine the merits on both sides. You can't do that on the whole of the Senate. You have to send it back to the state legislatures. And they, in fact, can flip what seemed to be a small majority in favor of Biden into a small majority in favor of Trump. And what happened is it was a one-man show. Pence decides he's not going to do that under the circumstances. He has generally been praised by virtually everybody on both the left and the right side of the media, except for the strong Trump supporters. And the the basic consideration is that it's just too much of a massive disruption to take a popular vote, which has been certified by a thousand different levels, and then to sort of upend the whole thing by saying we could send it back to the state legislatures. But that happens is you don't know how long they're going to take. You don't know whether or not when you return it to the state, it's going to generate further litigation of one form or another. And so I would assume that the correct form of of proposal for reform would have the following characteristics associated with it. It would try to eliminate all discretion on how it is that these things are counted. This is the classic illustration uh, that if the only thing that the messenger is going to do is to deliver a message, then you'd like to deliver the message without a messenger. That way you don't get any screw up. So to give you the other illustration, there's the Chiafalo case, which came down recently, and it challenged the convention that was developed very early on 
uh, which said that the electors are now bound by the slate of which they're a part. And if they are elected as Republicans, then they must cast a vote as a Republican. This is an effort to make sure that the message is just the message. And then somebody says, well, you know, I want to deviate from this and be independent. And the question that you have to ask is, can the messenger decide to say, look, I'm not going to vote for my guy. Um, I was pointed to, I'm not going to vote for the other fellow. I'm going to find some third person. And you get enough people doing that and the whole system goes down. It comes before the Supreme Court. And their attitude, I think, was commendable. Uh, We don't know whether this is constitutional or not, frankly, my dear. Elena Kagan made some argument that it was bound electors were consistent with the basic structure. I regarded those arguments as extraordinarily weak. Uh, But on the other hand, I think it's a much more powerful thing to say, look, we've done this now for about 150 years. We don't know whether it was right or wrong when it began with, but it's something I like to call the prescriptive constitution. When you do something for so long, you stop asking the question whether it's lawful or unlawful. You follow the practice because if you deviate from the practice, all hell will break loose because you have no idea what it is you're supposed to do when the established norm is going to be broken and you have to get somebody sitting in the office of the, you know, the White House on January 20th. On December 8th, you can't decide that you're going to improvise uh, when you have these hearings. So I think that's the correct approach. So what everybody is saying now is please do this right away. Find some way to make this thing relatively automatic and to do this before you get to the 2024 election where the whole thing could start to blow up again. It is a terrible sense of illegitimacy that takes place. If people, in effect, no matter which way they come out, have no confidence in the process because they could believe that it's been rigged by everybody else, and indeed one of the things that I think it's important to understand about this is While the media has been extremely um, pro-Biden with respect to the electoral count, including, you know, conservative places like the Wall Street Journal, you still are faced with a public of whom a substantial fraction of Republican voters, perhaps as many as half, believe that there were some irregularities in the election. Uh, Whether or not they were sufficient to change the outcome overall is something you could debate. But you can't have a system running where there's a lack of confidence in the bona fides of everybody involved in this on both sides of the political spectrum. And so that's the urge for reform. There's nothing about, I'm going to say about this, which is the slightest bit original. I think virtually every commentator has come out exactly the same way for exactly the same reason. Uh, The difficulty is going to be is how do you start to draft this thing in a way which makes sure that by replacing one set of a fraud procedures, you don't put into place another set of fraud procedures. Hopefully you can learn from the mistakes that you've already made. But of course, it's usually the case that sometimes you don't learn. What what share of the reforms do you think um, are going to, well, let's say not are going to be done, but should be done on the federal versus the state side? Because what I'm hearing from you is it sounds like we look at the, the ECA, it's some ambiguous language. We probably need to have Congress determine what to do in case states send um, conflicting, uh, well, you know, multiple instead of a single slate of uh, electoral um, votes. But on the state side, you know, people are worrying about, well, we looked at the last election, people are unhappy with, you know, the results one way or the other. And so new people are running for uh, the chief election officers in, you know, in, in states all over the place. The worry is voting could go well, but counting might not. So, I mean, is there other things to be done at state level? 
Um, there are going to have to be things done at the state level, but it's the same degree of suspicion. Look, this is the same battle on counting that you had back in 2000 with respect to Bush v. Gore. And the nation did not cover itself with glory. What you did is you had an extremely close election in Florida with maybe a couple hundred votes separating things. There was enough physical evidence that the chads were sometimes not fully detached. And you had to decide whether or not you had a semi-attached chad, which would or would not be counted. And the way in which the Florida statute had been worded, it was a Republican who was the Secretary of State who had oversight of the particular process. And then when this thing got to the Supreme Court by a 4-3 vote, what they decided was that it would be essentially the judicial system, not the Secretary of State, that took over this stuff. And what they then did is, you know, they were prepared to run another recount goes to the Supreme Court, and, you know, they have virtually no time to decide this uh, because everything is growing fast, and what they do, in effect, is they reject the uh, the decision below, and they said, yes, well, we have to do this, and then they make this kind of weird equal protection argument instead of making an argument that the procedures ought to be the way in which the state legislature declares them. Now, why is this important? Because of the reason that you mentioned. Our Constitution is just a complete compromise between state and federal government, and the dominance of the federal government that is easily presumed today is not an accurate reflection of the way the other system worked, in which it was powers were granted to the federal government. And so what you do is you see a number of provisions, including the operation of the militia and the voting count, in which it turns out that you've got joint responsibilities by the state on the one hand and by the federal government on the other. And it's very clear that the federal government is not supposed to be in charge of all of the stuff that's taking place here. So is this a time, place, and manner regulation? Is it a substantive regulation? You're going to have to fight all of that stuff through. And what makes this such a daunting prospect, and I think this is what you were after in some sense, is okay, we try to figure out how we count the ballots, and that means that we have to be confident that we have the right authorization by the states. But there's nothing whatsoever in the federal constitution that allows for the federal government to take over the counting mechanism at the state level. And that's what the Democrats are trying to do with their recent voting rights reform. And I think if you actually read this, the constitution reasonably clearly, they're probably overextending themselves, and it's probably incorrect, to which the answer will be, well, you have to defer to Congress on these things. Oh, no, we don't. And you're going to fight it on that. So what you're saying, in effect, is this. You try to run this reform, and everybody agrees it ought to be done. Uh, the second step is which reforms do we take, in what sequence, and with what consequences are going to be issues that will find themselves subject to a very strong partisan divide. So this is not a simple process. It's always going to be extraordinarily rocky. The basic advice that you give to people is you think you know what's going on, but you put hundreds of smart lawyers on both sides of the case. And by the time you're done, you don't know what's going on anyway, because every genius has got themselves another yet position. It's really amazing how creative lawyers can butcher statutes or interpret them in surprisingly nominal uh, novel ways. All right. I want to ask about um, well, early voting and absentee voting and the counts, because if you recall, um, the, play the playbook on the election night was to try and call results based on what was counted as of that night. And then totals changed as votes were counted. Uh, people th th can look at that and say, um, well, accuse any sort of irregular irregularity. But I haven't seen much change to state uh, rules on who decide who who counts votes as they come in or who who counts votes uh, starting on election night. Is that something that is going to still have to just happen state by state, or is that something a federal election commission could could rule on? 
it's it's going to happen state by state, at least the way in which the Constitution is currently ordered. And certainly without any federal comprehensive legislation, it's going to happen that way. And I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. Look, the essential notion that I would want to start with is something known as the chain of custody. And, and what you do, whether it's a product liability suit, whether it's a suit to turning deeds or the transfer of key documents, is you have to be confident that this thing goes from hand to hand, that there's no way that either one of the parties in the chain can subvert it or that some outsider from the chain can exploit a, diff- a weakness in the chain and lead it the way. So the traditional view in favor of having very tight restrictions with respect to voting, trying to concentrate it on the day of election, trying to make sure that you had to vote in person, was to make sure that you minimize the number of links so as to reduce the problems of the chain of custody. COVID comes along, and then all of a sudden, well, you want to bring all these people together? Do you want to have them vote? What do you do with overseas? Do you let them put them in box, in, in drop boxes? Do we allow people to gather votes from various people and to bundle them up and breathe it in there? And, and my attitude about all of this stuff on a kind of a bipartisan nature is that I don't like any of these fancy schemes because what they do is they compromise irretrievably uh, the control that you need over a chain of custody so as to make sure that things are done. Um, one of the things that you teach people when you do law early on is to say, uh, most people think that, you know, fraud is an abstract issue. But what they fail to underestimate is that the kinds of frauds that you're worrying about are not somebody who's caught with his hand in his cookie jar and then says, well, I only went in there in order to give some medicine to my niece. Um, what you're worried about are systematic frauds in which there are organized players who come together and, in fact, as part of a group, can take over some portion of the system. And if you go back to some of the early workmen's compensation scandals, it turns out that these fraud change and fraud networks were of an incredible complexity. The same thing could happen to an election. And so what you do is you don't want to get yourself into the frame of mind of thinking, well, 99% of the people in the United States will not do this. And so why are you worrying about it? Because there's 1% or even one-tenth percent of the population, which is quite willing to do all of this stuff. And if they manage to get their way, the other 99% don't matter. So when you're dealing with fraud, you always have to make sure that you can control the outlier. It is not enough to have an anti-fraud regime which works with respect to virtuous individuals. So I think that this is a very big issue, and there's been a systematic difference on it. The Republicans tend to want to tighten things up. The Democrats, who think that they're going to benefit from looser rules, want to keep it in the other direction. And resolving that question on a state level is going to be extremely difficult. Remember, the Georgia statute got itself into all sorts of trouble when they put it forward. Things like, can you give people drinks while they're waiting for the poll? Well, I can give you a drink and then sort of lectioneer to you. So do you say you could give them drinks or do you say there's a drinking station there and you could go and load your own bottle full? But what you cannot do under those circumstances is allow the intermediate to come in there. So the fraud issue is very, very key. And the Republicans tend to be more alert to it than the Democrats. And there's this huge battle over principle as to how it should be resolved. Last one for you, Richard, and I'm going to make you answer. 2024, do you think it is more contentious, less contentious, about the same as the 2020 election? Well, it depends who runs. If Donald Trump runs, it doesn't matter. It will be contentious. (laughs) I mean, the man essentially thrives on controversy, and he loves the attention. 
but it's three years away. He will be at that point 78 years old, uh, like Biden is now. Biden, I think, is deeply unpopular. I would not be surprised if the progressives or the re- or the reformers, the moderates, both sides try to run somebody against him. So you're going to see that. Uh, I think, in effect, if you don't get Trump running and you don't get Biden running, I think you have a better shot. I am very much opposed to having gerontocracies run the United States. And I'm Biden's age. I mean, older than Trump <laughs> and maybe a couple of months younger than Biden. And, you know, I don't see myself as being president of the United States. Uh, and I don't see anybody my age being that. I think some of us are pretty spry, some of us not. But the long-term consequences for a four-year term of putting somebody who's 78 years in office, not knowing what's going to happen, is, I think, a complete disaster. So I want younger blood to come in there. And what I would really like to do is to see a way in which you could reform the primary system so septuagenarians don't absolutely run the case. So I would hope that there'd be other people. The other thing that's going to happen is, is it going to be close? Now, my own guess about the 2022 election is that when this thing comes up this fall, the Republicans will make substantial gains in the House, 30 or more seats. They'll probably pick up three or four in the Senate, and they'll control both parts of this thing. That means if they basically can turn things around a little bit, there's a good chance that they will be in a substantially stronger position, particularly if Trump does not run in a general election. So if you get a general election in which the polls are going to show you sort of like Carter Reagan in 1980, there's going to be a substantial split. I think the correct answer to assume is uh, the election will not generate that kind of controversy. But if it turns out that it's going to be close then Katie could bar the door because everybody seems to think they have a holy mission to make sure that the other side doesn't take place, doesn't take control. And it's no doubt that the sort of the rhetoric of scorn that you see on both sides are the same. And they're using the same tropes. Republicans are bad for democracy. Democrats are bad for democracy and so forth. There's probably truth in both of these situations. But I'm not worried about the merits of this choice. What I am worried about the fact is when you get a deep cleavage, then the people on one side, particularly in a close election, think they have much more to lose than they do in an election in which there isn't, quote, unquote, a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. So I think the splits are likely to be very pronounced. And I think that all of that, given the stakes, means that there's just going to be hell to pay in an election if it turns out that it's close. And I don't think there are any set of rules that we could put into place that are bulletproof when it comes to that. This is an extremely difficult system to control. And there are too many people now who don't take the fraud risk, in my view, seriously enough. And if it turns out that we have relatively loosey-goosey rules, we're going to see abuses on both sides of the aisle. Uh, So um, I do not have an optimistic view about this. I would like the thing to be somewhat one-sided. And on that positive note, that'll do it for this episode of the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends or rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.